Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on the podcast today, a really fascinating chat with Andrew Parsons. You might not know the name, you definitely know his work. For more than a decade, he's been the personal photographer of the British Prime Ministers. Well, five of them all together. We did it for David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, a little bit of Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak too. So he reveals what it's like being in the room all the time, clicking away on his camera. And why did he take a photo of Boris Johnson's birthday party, which broke the lockdown rules? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as everyone on a Friday, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. And we say hello to India Knight. Hello, India. Good morning. Nice to have you here. And James Marriott's here in the studio. How are you, James? I'm all right. How are you? Are you sure? Yeah. Oh, okay. Doing that, okay. That little jingle telling me that you're, you're bashing away at your column reminds me I need to send file mine. I've not, not sent my column in yet. Have you not filed it? No. Do it now. What, what, while you're talking? Tall- <laughs> oh, go on then. Uh, let's talk about families. This is interesting. Some new ONS figures out show a fifth of all families are now couples who are not married. Although I was also quite surprised, looking at the stats, what, 65% of uh, families uh, involve married couples, which you, I, was, I thought that was quite high. Uh, marriage uh, and family has obviously been the topic of conversation at the NatCon conference this week. Uh, this is the Tory MP, Danny Kruger. The normative family held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their own parents and the sake of themselves, this is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. Marriage is not all about you. It's not just a private arrangement. It's a public act by which you undertake to live for someone else, for their sake and the sake of your children and the sake of wider society. And wider society should recognise and reward this undertaking. And as Miriam said earlier, we need to put families back at the heart of our fiscal system. Uh, so that was uh, Danny Kruger there, talking about, and uh, referring to Miriam Cates, another Tory MP, who said the biggest threat to uh, the planet right now, or to Western civilization, was the lack of babies. Uh, so, the, yeah, these stats show 66% of all families are married or civil partnered couples. Uh, 19% are cohabiting couples, and 15% are lone parent families. What do you think, India? Is, is the idea of family changing? And if it is, should it should politicians stick their all in and try to do something about it? Um, I think politicians should be quiet. I think as long as people are living happily in a family setup of their own devising, whether that's a traditional married um, family or a cohabiting family or whatever else suits them and they're raising happy children and they're content with their lives i don't think it's really anybody else's business i think that the, the constant i mean it's amazing that it still goes on really the constant sort of nostalgic yearning for a kind of 1950s model of a family you know i'm sure lots of people would like that kind of family and for whatever reason it hasn't worked out for them i think being told that that their family setup is in some way inferior 
um, is really kind of damaging and also pointless because families are evolving. It's correct that families should evolve. It's correct that people should make different sorts of accommodations to live contentedly together. And I think it's absolutely fine. And I think actually 65% um, is quite a high figure. Yeah. I thought it was less. Yeah, no, I thought that, James. The, the, actually, two-thirds of families are still married or civil partnered couples made me think that it's not we're not even in, in the grip of the crisis that, that some traditionalists might suggest yeah exactly i guess because so much of the news we hear is about declining birth rates um you know the loneliness epidemic and actually you know obviously those are important stories but because we you know tend to often focus on the kind of bad and you know or the new we actually forget that for a lot of people life is just quite normal and resembles life as it has been you know, for a long time and there's there not many, you know, things haven't changed that much. And yeah, we just sort of don't focus on that. And kind of, yeah, extraordinary that everyone, you know, this nat National Conservatism Conference is decrying, you know, how terrible it is that no one's married anymore when actually 65% of people are with kids. And yeah, I don't know. Particularly given all the, you know, the conversation we've had before about housing, you know, young people who can't afford mm. to move out from their parents and then they can't afford to get on the housing ladder and you know so all those sort of life staging posts are being delayed now i'm still i was, I was quite yeah I, th I think it's also a reminder of you know part of the fault of the media is that everyone lives in london and people in london you know disproportionately affected by the housing crisis uh, i think people in london tend to be more single and i think that can kind of blind a lot of people to the fact that you know not not all of life is in London. Yeah. And, you know, what? We, <laughs> we you know, I think there can be a tendency in newspapers and stuff to forget that, you know, life goes on outside so are you, differently. Are you, you going to do as Danny Kruger says and go down on one knee? Go down on one knee? Yeah. Um, oh, one propose. Um, I don't know. I'm living in whatever percentage of families is just me and my girlfriend. We've, we've, only, we've only just moved in, so I don't know. Is she listening? You're living in sin. Yes, well, that's true. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a modern metropolitan um, <clears throat> heathen. <laughs> I guess in Danny in Danny Kruger's in Danny Kruger's book. <laughs> yeah, you're in the uh, one in five. Nineteen percent of families are cohabiting couples. Yeah, that's there me. We there we are. Uh, very good. Uh, right, um, let's move on and look at this. Uh, yeah, this is really interesting about uh, people who rise to the top of politics, in particular. Uh, almost half of uh, the fifty-one prime ministers who've held office since uh, Sir Robert Walpole lost their fathers before the age of 21. 15 lost their mothers before they were 22, which was Tony Blair's age when his mother died in 1975. Uh, Lord Aberdeen was an orphan before he was 12. And this is the idea, James, that that, that, that sort of trauma in some ways influences people, drives them on. Yeah, I just find this so unbelievably interesting because it sounds like one of those kind of, you know, woo-woo psychoanalysis, oh, people are driven by childhood trauma to achieve things. But when you look at these statistics, yeah, many, much more than half of all prime ministers lost a parent in childhood. And, you know, I guess the kind of, if you were going to be a, a therapist, you'd say that these people have been deprived of love and attention and then have gone to the rest of their lives desperately trying to seek the attention that they didn't get in childhood. There's a famous thing... Boris Johnson's mum, you know, said that when he decided that he wanted to be world king, which is something that he said he wanted to be as a kid, she thought he was basically trying to make himself, you know, as powerful and um, adored as possible to make up for the fact that he had a very unhappy childhood where no one paid attention to him and he wasn't treated very well by his kind of, you know, 
chaotic family setup in childhood. And I think, I don't know, I just think it's true. And I just think it's unbelievably interesting how stark it is. More than half of prime ministers lost a, lost a parent in childhood, which is way, way higher than the rate in the general population. Yeah. And I think even beyond that, actually, if you look at people who didn't lose a parent, not to get too, you know, armchair psychology about it, there will be other, st- there will be other things going yeah, on. Yeah, so yeah. Boris Johnson had, you know, a fairly awful childhood. And I imagine the same is true for a lot of the people whose parents didn't actually die. It's really interesting. I've, I, <clears throat> I think actually, I think I said fifty-one problems. We've had a, we've had a few more than that um, in in the last twelve months. Um, uh, India, what do you think about this? Because actually, it's, it's it's the thing that um, uh, Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson have talked about from their their podcast, uh, Past Imperfect, where they speak to people from not just politics but from all walks of life, and it does that sort of early childhood trauma does seem to have an impact on people. Yeah, I don't know. It's really, really interesting. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. The numbers are extraordinary. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily so much about wanting attention and wanting, as it were, to be world king. I think it's possibly also about feeling it that feeling that it's particularly important to make your mark and to possibly, possibly keep. I don't know. Maybe there's something about keeping your family name if your father's dead or. About about sort of you know coming good and coming through, and and being very motivated by that. But I mean, there's clearly something in it. It's not by accident. Yeah, was yeah. It- I think I think India's correct about you. I think having that sudden awareness when you're a kid that oh god, life really does end. I've got to get a move on. I, I've actually mm-hmm. having spoken to friends who's who've lost parents in childhood. I think that's a really profound thing that you get. You also get it. I think in. Um, children who've had near-death experiences in childhood have been very, very ill, I think end up being, can often end up being, I mean, this is to overgeneralize, but in my experience, can often end up being quite driven because I think you're like, oh, wow, there's not much time. I've got to, you mm-hmm. know, I've got to get a move on. I mean, my mum died when I was three, so I can't, uh, and I'm not Prime Minister. But you are, Matt Chorley, on <laughs> Times Radio. <laughs> yeah. Even, is, even more impressive, some might say. Maybe there's something in, in the sort of, the, the desire to, sh- I don't know, show off? Want to want to leave a mark? I do think or I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll get accused of kind of woo-woo therapy speak. I just do think it's true. I just it just seems so obvious that it's true. But then my older brother couldn't be more different to me. In he hates getting up in front of a room full of people in a way that possibly yeah. I quite enjoy. Or you know, I mean, I guess people will you know people will respond people ways. respond differently. And you know, some people I think if they have traumatic childhoods, they just completely can drive them into chaos and drug addiction and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you have, I don't know, presumably some kind of genetic pers- you know, personality thing, it yeah. can just completely push you. I mean, the same with authors, musicians, very similar figures for US presidents. Like, I don't know. I think a lot of high-achieving people are driven yeah. by yeah, things really like this. It's really interesting. Um, well, um, we'll, uh, well, let us know what you think about that. Do get in touch. 87222, start matter with the word times. Up next, have you got a humanities degree like... Woo-woo. What's the phrase you keep using? Woo-woo. Woo-woo. Why do I keep saying that? It's I a good know. phrase. I like it. Yeah. Woo-woo. It's nice to say. Isn't it like a big like sticky drink you get in jugs in pubs? Jug yeah, it's a cocktail, it's a isn't cocktail, it? Yeah. yeah. Right. Let's turn our attention now to the death of humanities. Not the death of humanity. Even more important than that is not enough people are doing history degrees or something, James. Yeah. Uh, I, so I wrote a piece about this in the Times last weekend and... I did, a, I did an English degree and, you know, when I was at university, I thought this was the most important thing in the world. And a really striking thing that's happened to education in the last 10 years is that people doing subjects like English, history, classics, art history, music, languages, all those subjects have just basically in 10 years collapsed. 
um, English history fallen by a third, languages fallen by almost 50%. And my idea of what, you know, an education was only 10 years ago is now very different. New subjects that are now, you know, have raced up the kind of popularity rankings. Maths is now the most popular A-level. Things like sociology, business studies, psychology has had an absolutely massive increase in popularity. You sound furious, James. Um, <laughs> it's the most disgusting thing you've ever heard, that people are doing a maths Everybody A-level. should be studying poetry. What could be more useful, in my opinion? <laughs> um, India, where do you stand on this? I'm completely with James. Um, it's very, very good, his essay. And very, I find it really... Um, depressing, actually, because I think that, I mean, of course, we need facts and numbers and figures and cold, hard, provable things. But we also need imagination. And arts degrees are about enabling you to experience a world that is not your own. And I think if you lose that, you, you, you end up having less imagination, less empathy, less creativity, too, obviously. But but I, I think genuinely it's making people a little bit more stupid because you you see it for example in younger people's complete inability to entertain a view that is not exactly their own you know in, in J- james in his um piece gives lots of examples of people um the few people still doing english degrees you know not being able to get through books uh, because they're too difficult or they disagree with them too much or they're too triggering or they're too whatever i think if you're just never exposed to anything that isn't either a cold provable number or a cold hard fact you you you're i don't know i think art is kind of it's sort of the expression of the human soul, you know. It's trying to make place, to make sense of people's place in the world. It's little human beings going, "Why am I here? What matters? What is important? What do I think? Yeah. What can I see?" And I think losing that is really—I think it's awful. I think it's really sad. I also think that a lot of this is about too many less prestigious, shall we say, universities churning out vocational degrees, luring people in saying come to us come to us you we, we'll give you a qualification that will get you work and actually it won't necessarily get them work unless they do very well in that particular degree well listen, there are lots of very lots of very clever scientists if you haven't got a first then you know i think you're disposable also ai <laughs> anyway i will stop now when well, no, grimacing through all of this is our resident boffin <laughs> uh t- the science editor of the times tom whipple Look, I mean, I, I, I read almost all of James's essay. Um, it, was, it was long and it was fine. Um, he started with a, a, a stirring anecdote of a professor of literature who's seeing literature studies crash at his university. And, I mean, yeah, it was sad, but the, the man studies storybooks. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying there isn't a place for that, but if you were to start this thing a priori and say, how how many, do we want to create a system where we send thousands and thousands of people who can't do maths to go and study stories? I mean, is, is this what, what's the correct number and, and why? I mean, I, I read a novel just last week and I don't have an English degree, but I bet you didn't read any advanced calculus last week. 
But could you analyse that novel very sensitively? Well, no, I, I could not. Then. But while you were sitting in the bar with your effete friends, smoking roll-ups and doing sort of Marxist critiques of Chaucer, there were people nearby who were using that time to learn how to make vaccines. But then, you know, probably in the next building, possibly even in the same bar, the, the spotty people you avoided. And by the way, the people no platforming, the people not accepting views, I guarantee it is not the engineers. They're members of the sailing club. They're not members of the Oxford Student Union sort of saying to Kathleen Stock that she can't be here. They're having fun going climbing and then doing equations. James, Kathleen's messaged in. Uh, saying, I loved my English degree, but my partner is astonished I can't spell. He thinks it was three years of spelling tests, when, of course, it was actually immersing yourself in literature. Three years of a literature degree, you can't spell. I also struggle with spelling. What? I'm often told off for it by my <laughs> editors at the time. Names especially tend to get me. Oh, well, uh, So I'm not a great advert for an English degree. No, I mean, what Tom <laughs> says is, is obviously correct, and one of the experts I was talking to was saying, if you were playing geopolitics is a kind of strategy game and you're in charge of Britain and someone said, okay, how are you going to educate your population for the 21st century? Poetry or maths and, uh, you know, sociology. The, the, choices, the choices from that perspective might be clear. But I don't know. I just find it, I just find it, very, I just find it personally sad because I, I loved my English degree. What, and I um, want to live in a world... What's your to... degree in India? Oh my gosh, even more defunct. Uh, French and Italian. Well, that's all right. That's, that's, at least that's useful if you go on holiday. Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, so I, think, I think there is a semi-serious point. For the past 10 years in science, I've been... We've had the, all these campaigns, these laudable campaigns, to get more women in science because we've seen yeah, yeah. this this unbalance in science. But we know that there are more women studying at universities. And I've always said the corollary of this is fine. But if you want more women in science, you do have to actually say, I want fewer women in the humanities, and therefore they're in some way lesser. And no one's ever said that. And, you know, when you make when you have these campaigns, the trade-offs are implicit, and we, we have to decide, do we want more engineers? If so, well done, we're doing it. Leo's been in touch saying Tolkien would never have created Lord of the Rings without knowledge of art history. <laughs> but mm. uh, is that a good... I'm not sure that's a case for or against, is it? Well, I mean, Lord of the Rings been... hobbity, hairy-footed people? It's been very good for the economy. And actually, some, someone pointed out to me in my essay, we kind of misunderstand our own economy. We basically think we're Germany with a huge manufacturing sector, but actually, you know, art and culture is a much right. bigger part of the British economy. Right. Not poetry necessarily, but related <laughs> activities. Yeah, the GDP. The poetry, the poetry <laughs> GDP. Probably an active drag yeah. in the economy, actually. Well, I'm glad we've sorted no. all that out. Anyway... Indian Night and James Barrett there and of course you can read the stories we were discussing just hit the links in the podcast description and subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box Up next it's former Downing Street photographer Andrew Parsons You're listening to The Red Box Podcast now it's time for this The Big Thing on Times Radio now, we've all wanted to be a fly on the wall in those big political moments. My guest today has actually done it. Uh, for more than a decade, Andrew Parsons has been the official photographer for Prime Ministers. He's captured uh, ministers here in the UK and around the world, and occasionally uh, when they've been uh, knocking children over playing sports as well. Andy joins me now. How are you doing? Matt, I'm very well. I'm very well. And you? Yeah, before we, um, we get stuck into you taking pictures of Prime Ministers, we've just realised you, you took my photo. Yeah. 18 years ago. Hello. All the glorious leaders of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. I know, and the fact that we've known each other 18 years. And our paths have crossed a lot in that time, uh, when I've been occasionally trailing around after politicians. But you always got to go into the, 
the room that the journalists didn't, the room where we really wanted to be, where the real action was happening. Before we get into the, some of the details of some of the pictures you've taken, because a lot of political photos are men in suits with ties on, sat around a table. So what, what for you makes a great, a great political photo? I mean, you're spot on there. The big challenge is the fact that there's a lot of suits. You've got to try and make that look interesting one way or another, and that's no easy task. Trying to look at two world leaders of any form standing there shaking hands, you know, smiling, trying to look happy towards each other, whether the situation is good or bad, yeah. is, is a mean task. And to do that, you're usually looking for the moments that aren't quite so, so staged, or if, for example, when they've just met, when it breaks down and you're, you're there to catch that millisecond afterwards or before. In my case, I've been very lucky because I've been, as you say, on the inside, so that after the official engagements, I would then blend in with, with the rest of the team. And as part of blending in, they forget you're there and, and then you'll catch that moment. But I've always said, I said it a lot, especially when I was in Downing Street, you don't go fishing, you don't catch fish, you know? You have to sit there and wait and wait and wait. So explain then your role. You'd been a photographer for a long time. We worked together at the Press Association and then you'd worked in and around the Conservative Party. But then you went into to number 10 in 2010 there was a bit of a row about it and you came out, but you basically have been in the room for, what, four Prime Ministers? A little bit of a shit about about and Yeah, so five. four and a bit, really, I guess you could say, yeah. So what's your role? Because sometimes those pictures are released and sometimes they aren't. So what, what, when you're in the room and you're taking the photos, what is your role? Your main role and your main focus in, in, as a photographer is that you are there to document what's going on in front of you. So some of it, you know, it might be released depending on what the situation is. Some of it might not be so classified, so you can release it. Other stuff will be classified, so you can't. So I'd probably say about two, maybe 20% of it for social media and the other 80% was for the National Archives. So when you're in government, everything has to be recorded. From all the meetings of COVID, the Brexit meetings, uh, the phone calls to international leaders, because you don't quite know what's going to happen on that call. It could be a call where they decide all decide to press the button. We, you just don't know. So you've got to go in, you've got to photograph it. And to do that, there's a lot of trust. It's usually you and the Prime Minister in the room, no one else, because the outer team are listening in on different phones elsewhere. So you've got to wait for your moment and you've got to think, right, this might not be that exciting now, but in five years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time, this will mean something. And at a time when so much of what's happening in politics is done on WhatsApp or texting, it's not all written down in formal memos and all that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. So that, that's all that you know, have to fall back on because the nature of the beast now in society is that we don't write letters or send things off to each other. So that, that was the main role and that's what I set out to do with number 10 was to make sure that everything was documented, everything was recorded, everything is catalogued, everything is searchable so that you can find anything like in years, not now, but in 10, 20 years time. Tell us about your kit because presumably you want to blend in, you want to be the fly on the wall they forget's there. So you don't want loads, like a massive, great big lens. Presumably it's not, you're not click, 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 no, click, no. clicking at the if, corner. If we're going to get You've got that turned off. For the, for the amateurs out there, then um, it's not. Everything's now is like uh, mirrorless, so they don't even make a noise. So therefore they forget you're there instantly because you're not hearing the shutter going off. I was a strong believer in using like what we would call prime lenses, fixed lenses. So there's no zooms. You would make the picture work by moving closer or further away, whichever was there. So very small kit unless you were going on international travels and stuff like that. And I was very lucky in, I've probably been asked to leave the actual Prime Minister's office, probably, you know, I could probably count on one hand four or five times where they've actually said, look, you know, would you mind giving us some space? And what's that, what's the reason for that? 
Usually it used to happen if they were obviously going to talk to the Queen because we weren't allowed to, to be involved in any of that. Or if they might have had a, like a personal issue they wanted to sort out on the phone. Or the last resort sort of would be sort of like if the spooks were involved because obviously we weren't allowed to see who's who and whatnot. And tell me about then when, do you ever, do you ever have a situation where you take a photo and then the Prime Minister turns around and says, right, delete that? Either because they think, oh, I was pulling, I was doing a big yawn then. Hand on heart, I've never been asked to delete one by a Prime Minister. <laughs> that sounds like you have been asked to delete one by someone. Oh, oh no, that's, <laughs> that's, you, that's you with the, as I revert back to fishing again, that's you fishing. Not at all. I haven't been asked to delete a, a picture, no. Looking through some of your archives, I thought the, the, the most, there were obviously lots of politicians sitting around tables looking Prime Ministerial. But the moments of real personal drama, the, the ones that sort of leap out, and the, the two that really contrast, I thought, were there was a set of pictures of David Cameron at his house in Oxfordshire in 2015, when he was waiting for the results to come in. And then Boris Johnson on the night of the election in 2019, that famous photo which everyone will have seen of him punching the air, yeah, when he realised yeah. that he was going to get that majority. And that is the thing in politics, you, you start the day out with one thing and you just generally don't know which direction it's going to go in, especially at an election time. That picture you're talking about, he's actually, he's, he's actually um, writing his letter where he's preparing to resign. Wow. So yeah. in fact, so he's sitting on his... He's sort of on his patio with some of his team. He's got a laptop on his lap. Yeah, out in Oxfordshire. And yeah. he's writing his resignation letter because he thinks he's about to lose the election. So it would have been about eight, nine o'clock time in the evening. And then an hour later... But here it is, ten o'clock. And we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. The exit polls come out and it's literally within an hour. So my, you know, my day has turned in an hour. And that's where I'm coming from, where you start seeing the finish line. And you suppose instead of thinking, well, I'll wait until we get the exit poll, well, you need to be capturing the emotion and the tension and all of that and the run up to it. Yeah. And so how many pictures would you take in a day? You know, it could be anything. I, I try and take a, not as many as I used to. I used to be, <laughs> <laughs> I used to get a bit excitable, you know. As I said earlier on, you know, you've got to pace yourself. as well because you've only got to edit it and stuff yeah. like that. It, it could vary. It could vary, you know, to a thousand images a day. If you're out for a 12-hour day sort of thing. Um, yeah, and then you've got to be ready for that evening time when, for example, like you talk about with Boris there, jumping for joy, you know, in, in Thatcher's study at Downing Street. Uh, and you just think, well, bang, that's it. One moment, it's gone. And, and you've got to be ready for it. You can't recreate it. You can't say, can you do that again? It, it, that is what happens, you know. So in all the, the rooms you've been in, all the moments, has there been a moment where a thing happened and you didn't get your camera out in time? No. <laughs> no, there hasn't been, there hasn't been. And, 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 and is it and because you, 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 have to you wait. must have amazing biceps or something. You're sitting there constantly, like, you're like, you're like Penny Morden the carrying the sword. Do. There are a lot of the meetings yeah. you do and you have, to, you have to sit and wait and wait. And then, you, especially in important ones, people say, well, why do you have to do every single meeting? You know, that COVID meeting might have been news that X, Y and Z was happening or the Brexit meeting might have been, well, VDL's somebody comes in called. with a bit of paper and all that. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, take, uh, you can take the, the time, uh, you know, when 9-11 um, happened, when the, the, um, the person whispered into George Bush's ear and he was in a school, you just don't know. And that happened to me when I was, we were at school, funny enough, I think it was when the London bridge terror attack happened, I think. And it flashed up on my watch that something had happened on the bridge. I was in the, was in the classroom with him. There was no aides. This was with Boris at the time. And I was starting to get prepared for someone to come in yeah. and, and, you know, whisper in the ear. Because like, obviously the situation changed dramatically from then on. I can assure you and assure everyone that anybody involved 
in this crime, in these attacks, uh, will be hunted down and will be brought to justice. So you're, you're sort of constantly tuned in or you get a sense of something might be happening, regardless, you know, in not, not as bad as, as, as the London attacks, but you get a sense that something's brewing. You think, hold on, there's something quite not right here, and you work it out from there. Or you, you hear whispers that someone's coming in, you know, it's a Graham Brady. Uh, <laughs> and you're like, well, we get cameras, you know. Um, you know and, and the sheer fact that we've done, we had such a turnaround uh, last year, you couldn't, you couldn't leave it alone, you know. Uh, as a photographer, you don't want to not be there. That's the whole point. So you sort of first in, last out for the whole day? Pretty much, yeah. On a days like when there's someone resigning or something. Yeah, like those three days of when Boris resigned were were pretty tough going. One of the things, talking about Boris, one of the things looking through your photos that struck me is that he had a lot more fun when he was Mayor of London than when he was Prime Minister. You did all the, you know, playing rugby. I'm sorry. Going out with guns and all of that sort of stuff. Rather than, there seemed to be quite a lot of him sitting behind desks looking stressed when he was Prime Minister. Um, I don't think his character changed at all. I think obviously, you know, what with Covid, the position changed as well. I do believe towards the end of his time, we started doing some to getting interesting out and about. stuff. Getting out and with about. grenades Get and that, that were being thrown and um, he went to fly a jet somewhere. You know, we, we did a few other entertaining jobs. And when we were internationally, he would do. Yeah. He would go and do a few things. You've mentioned COVID. We should probably discuss what's become, if not the most famous, but contentious of your photos: Boris Johnson and the birthday cake, which he did or did not eat during the during the lockdown. Did you? Was it just the case that you were just taking photos of everything? Were you ever told, "Don't take a photo of that because we think this might be breaking the rules"? No, because we didn't think we were. Uh, literally, we'd been out on a visit and walked into the cabinet room for the next meeting, which I would have photographed. And, and obviously what happened was, was photographed, you know, which I think as a few, few papers have stated at the time, proved the fact there wasn't really a party. But, um, and I think at the time, you know, Boris sort of said that if that had been the case, then I wouldn't have been there anyway. And in terms of being there in the room when all those things are happening, do you get involved in those meetings? Because it wouldn't have been your place necessarily to pipe up and say, I don't think this is in line with the rules. I mean, I don't, no, I don't, I'm, I don't make any comments in any meetings. Uh, no, no. Um, I, I'm did you eat any bir- there to document it. Did you eat any birthday cake? I never saw the cake. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, but you know, I, mean, I think it's, it's vitally important that we, that we still document the Prime Minister, you know, of, of, of the UK, and, and, and long may it continue, bearing in mind beforehand, there was no photography department. Yeah. And it's not about, like you, just, like you mentioned earlier on, about vanities and all that. It's not. It's a, it's a done thing now that we should be having this for, for the National Archives. All that COVID stuff with, with, um, with the scientists and all the meetings that were there, all the stressful calls that were going on. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a valid cause to have one. Um, I should ask you, that, um, I know in the past there's been complaints from some photograph- other photographers that you got all the good gigs, partly because you got all the good travel, but it also meant that journalists who wanted to document what happened journalistically weren't always invited in the way they had been before. What's your sort of rationale for that? Hey, look, this job wasn't just given to me. 
Uh, like they didn't say, oh, they didn't walk out into down the street, pick a photographer, any photographer, one will do. Yeah. I've been with these, these guys, uh, well, Boris for 13 years, Cameron now for about, t at that time, for about 10 years. It was a long job interview, you know? <laughs> and to do that, you have to, put in the, you have to put in the miles. Any other photographer could have done it. They didn't, uh, you know. I don't believe any access was stopped at all, which yeah. I know that there's claimed at the time. No access was ever stopped and the visit still happened, the pool system still worked. From your side of things, the scribblers, the caption writers, that was never any, I, I mean- We I got more pictures as to that, write we, that we did before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, in some ways we were, you know, we were keeping your job safe by giving it, you know, giving, <laughs> giving you pictures giving you to write things. about. Uh, exactly that. And um, in the sense of your access or journalistic access, that, that was obviously, I, I don't know the story behind that because that, that's not my department sort of thing. Now, of course, after David Cameron came Theresa May, not renowned for kicking her heels off and relaxing. So I asked Andrew if Theresa May was more difficult to photograph. I was going to say, you say that. A lot of people, I guess a lot of people would say, but I, there are um, a few pictures I've got of her where she's relaxed and has been laughing. I, there was a particular one where she just got in and she was leaning up against the photocopier and was having a giggle and a laugh. And, and odd moments like that she would do. She would relax. And, 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 but you, and that's another question where you'd have to be ready. Because yeah. you wouldn't think no, that was exactly, a place that yeah. was going to happen. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't think, oh, hold on. There's no build-up to it. It would just sort of happen. Or she'd see someone that she hadn't seen for ages and was very personable with and would, and would laugh. And she was lovely to work, work with, really, because, because of that, you never really expected anything. Yeah. And then when you did, you got some nice yeah. stuff, you know. And obviously, Boris Johnson was the gift it kept on giving. What about Liz Truss? Because she, to some extent, before she became Prime Minister, she really used photography to sort of shape her image going out and around the world and being very particular about her photo ops and all that sort of stuff. But in the end, being good at the photo op doesn't necessarily make you a good Prime Minister. No, and it's from my perspective only, it was very difficult mentally because I'd gone from Boris, who I'd known for so long, who we both sort of could read each other and work out each other. I know that, you know, when, when a good time was to leave, when to stay, to, yes, I did know Liz, you have to learn to read someone again. And to learn to read someone in such a difficult time with, you know, with the death of the Queen and stuff that else that was going on, you, you, you're sort of starting from scratch. Uh, and, and you're right, she, in the Foreign Office, you know, there, were, there were a lot of pictures that were taken, and good pictures as well. I know that, I know that they've been written about in X, Y and Z format, but they were good pictures. And, and, and there weren't too many years ago, the days that we were on PA, for example, we, we wouldn't have been talking about them so much. We'd just been saying they're great pictures. Because yeah, yeah. that's all that used to happen in those, that well, style of pictures used to happen. But in. I suppose um, at one point she had more pictures on the, on the government Flickr account than every other cabinet minister that's, put together. Uh, very good research, yeah, she did. <laughs> and of course my job was to oversee all of this, even though I... So was she demanding, was she picking them. up the phone to the photography team and saying, I want more pictures on the Flickr account? No, there was never a, there was never a Flickr, ne she wanted, never a Flickr account. But she, wa she wanted more pictures? I mean, it got a bit, there was a bit of a joke with, the, with other ministers going, you know, can, can we get on the Flickr account? <laughs> so at which point we, you know, we would perhaps sort of diversify out a little bit. I mean, there was, I mean, cabinet ministers, I mean, I, I always used to do cabinet reshuffle, for example. And I used to be standing outside the, the door of the cabinet room because I would go in at the top of the thing 
uh, top of the um, appointment, get them being photographed, and the, the joke always used to be, oh, that's good, I'm not being sacked and I'll end up on Flickr. Because <laughs> I was there, so they were being photographed. I would never do, obviously, anyone that was being sacked. Exactly. But, but, um, yeah. So if you had your photo taken, that was good. Yeah, yeah. If I was standing by the cabinet door, the, the, uh, the member of the cabinet would be, would, would, that was always, good, yes. would always go, phew, that's a relief. Um, Parsons is coming in, we're, we're having, a, you know, I'll get on Flickr and I'll have my picture taken. But yeah, I mean, there was never, put it this way, that the, the phone wasn't hot with, uh, Liz Truss has got 296 and I've got six on. But I mean, <laughs> and she was she, a foreign secretary. She's one of the busiest. She was travelling a lot. Yeah. And that's better pictures. Yeah. And when she becomes Prime Minister then, was she concerned about what you were doing, either to take good photos or to not be in the room? No one's ever sort of said about us not taking good pictures because you're at, you are at the top of your game. You know, you're not going to be take. I don't mean it in any sort of trumpet blown way, but you're not going to be taking rubbishy pictures. But... You know, no one ever dictated to us what we should and what we shouldn't do. I never, a lot of people have asked me that over the, over the time. Like, what was your brief? What was your brief? Did you get briefed every day? You must do this, you must do that. I didn't. I used to float around and try and piece it together like a big jigsaw puzzle. What's going to happen today? You know, it, it was too fast in there for any of that. You just blended in. And then what about Wishy Sunak? Because he's a man who, who's carefully cultivated his image as well. You've been in, you obviously photographed him a lot when he was Chancellor. And I think you've been back recently doing some pictures for him. Is he, is he a man who enjoys having his photo taken? Yeah, Rishi is. I've never, never had a problem. Um, it was, it was quite, sometimes quite refreshing to go off with him up into, into his constituency areas and stuff like that. And in fact, for most prime ministers, going off to their constituencies, actually, to be honest, is the best place. Because they just relax. And that's it. They get, you, know, they, you can feel it. But I've never never been directed by any of the people, you, any PMs that you've uh, messaged going, oh, I like it this way, I like it that way. Or, Can't do that again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, and I know a lot of people go, oh, yeah, I'm sure they're they make out they're busy, but they are really busy. They, when you they see their diary, it's literally bang, 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 bang. There is no time for, like, oh, 15-minute lunch break or anything like that. It just doesn't help. Or when they do have a lunch, it's often brought in on a tray, like any old tray, not like the... Um, and it's usually a sandwich from... Pret or somewhere like that, you know, and they're eating it while they're going through the next wandering around, around yeah. sort of thing. It's not as laid out as people think it is, and it, it is pretty manic in there. And it, don't get me wrong, in what I did, it was it's the best photography job in the world. So looking back then, you, you talked about politicians and presidents and royalty, and you've been to the White House and Iraq, Afghanistan, like all around the world and all around the UK. What's the sort of standout moment for you when you the sort of pinch yourself moment? You think I can't quite believe I'm in this room or this situation? In the sense of, like you say, in the Afghanistan, I was one of the first to photograph the British troops being ambushed. I remember then I thought, you know, my, I was lucky to get out. We were all quite lucky at that time to get out alive. And I thought then, God, it's going to be hard to sort of beat this. But then I sort of did more and more into politics. And then the whirlwind that it's been in the last few years, you're like, I literally remember doing... David Cameron coming out, uh, leaving, being clapped out, tears and everything. And 30 minutes later, Theresa May, I was doing being clapped in. And I was like, gosh, you know, that, that's pretty history that's just been made there. You, do, you know, the same staff, but they're clapping her in 30 minutes later. And then, of course, the changing of the times of, of Boris coming in and after all the years of going around, around the world with him. Um, and then we finally get into number 10 and you're documenting it. I would, for me, I would say the, the Boris years, really, I'd have to, because of the period of time that was invested into it. 
when you start over, over at City Hall and then you've got to the big, big black doors and you think, what a journey, how did this happen? But it didn't really sink in at the time. And those three days in July where obviously, you know, it didn't work out and he had to resign. I remember walking into the room, into the Thatcher study again, funny enough where the celebration of the majority happened. And then in the July, um, not so long after, a few years after, we went in about eight o'clock in the morning. The first thing I heard was, where do you want to do this? Do you want to do it in the street or elsewhere? And I was still taking pictures. And then I just knew then. And I was behind my camera and I, and I knew, I was like, that's it, it's done. I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Those three days of documenting everything behind the scenes there, I don't think I will ever, I'll ever forget, you know, just the, just the emotion and, the, and, the, and the mentally the headspace that you're in. You forget the photography side of things. And you've got to, you've got to keep going because everything you're, you're taking from there on in is, is of such historic value that you can't afford emotions to get in the way. You've just got to keep going. Even when there's people in tears and people you know that you've known for years and, and you've you just got to block it out and keep going. And it's not until it's probably like a week or so after that you, you sort of sink and let it all, all drop in. So final question then, Andy Parsons. Do you think you'll ever be back in number 10 photographing Prime Minister Boris Johnson again? I knew, I knew uh, that <laughs> you were going to, I knew you'd ask that. Um, hey, I don't, know if, I don't know if I will be, I, don't, I never say never. I've sort of got used to life of not <laughs> photographing politicians so much as I was. Um, you always know when something's brewing because the phone rings and what you're doing is X, Y and Z dates and, and the ca carrot slightly gets dangled, which it did of late, but whether I whether well, I there's, take a, the there's a general election coming at some point, are you free, Andy? Come out on the road again one last time. Yeah, it's always one last time. Then, <laughs> that, it? It's always one last time. That's the problem. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I never thought I would bounce back between four or four and a bit of them, um, and you kept going. You survived longer than almost anyone else in politics. Well, that's what someone someone else did say that I should have been a member of the cabinet because I've been there long, longer than anyone else. But yeah, and I thought well, I don't quite know what it would be, you know. But still, but um, yeah, let's look. Who would have thought everything would have happened in that last year to know where we're going to go to in the, in the, in the future? And I would, today's world, never say never about anything. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Do get in touch in all the usual ways. You can email me, Matt, at times.radio or post a review wherever you're listening. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.